This week in KMA Land, Fremont County Supervisors take stance on eminent domain. Shenandoah Noise Ordinance Amendment passes quietly. Shenandoah Senior Housing Project still a go. Clarinda School Board backs use of former academy grounds. Page County Courthouse window replacement set. And we'll hear the latest on the brush fire battles in KMA Land. I'm Mike Peterson. Add Fremont County to your list of KMA Land County, sounding off on the issue of eminent domain in a proposed carbon pipeline project. By unanimous vote Wednesday morning, the Fremont County Board of Supervisors approved a letter to the Iowa Utilities Board stating its objections to using eminent domain to secure property for projects such as Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express Pipeline, across a good portion of western Iowa. Since Fremont County is a location for a portion of the more than 700-mile pipeline, the letter states the supervisors, on behalf of its constituents, quote, are not in favor of invoking eminent domain for this project. The letter further states, quote, this is a pipeline that is being done by a for-profit private company, end of quote. Supervisors Chair Randy Hickey told KMA News the board feels participation in this project should be left up to individual landowners. Bottom line is I think the landowners have a right to do what they want on their own ground without somebody coming in and telling them with eminent domain they can put it across their, their properties. So that's kind of what we decided, the reason why we did that. Hickey tells KMA News property owners in his county have voiced concerns over the proposed CO2 pipeline. Some of the landowners don't like the idea that that product is going through the pipeline and and uh, they just just didn't want it coming through their properties. In addition, the letter requests that the petition for a hazardous liquid pipeline permit be denied, quote, if the pipeline company cannot get the necessary landowners to agree to voluntary easements. Fremont County officials joined others in KMA land voicing their opposition toward eminent domain for the pipeline project. Hickey says it's important for western Iowa counties to show a unified front. All these counties down here need to make their voice heard, so we need to let them know that they ought to take a hard look at what they're doing up there on this eminent domain. So that's kind of where we're at. Though the Iowa House recently approved a one-year moratorium on eminent domain applications for CO2 pipeline projects, action is still pending in the Iowa Senate. Hickey was asked whether the stance by Fremont County and others will send a message to state lawmakers. You never know what the legislators are going to do. So, But I hope that they'll take a hard look at it and, and really see what where we're coming from. Utilities board members aren't expected to rule on the issue until next spring at the earliest. Changes in the city of Shenandoah's noise ordinance are in the books. By a 4 to nothing vote Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council approved the first reading of an amendment to city regulations. Council members then weighed the second and third readings and adopted the changes by the same vote. Shenandoah City Administrator A.J. Lyman told KMA News the amendment establishes a decibel limit for noises and civil penalties for those cited for violations. A noise violation would be any sound in excess of 85 decibels between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., seven days a week. That's the real crux of it, and then it associates a, a civil penalty with that, a fine amount, not just a court appearance. 
Lyman says the new regulations replace previous language setting violations for loud, raucous noises, language deemed as vague by an Iowa Supreme Court ruling. Council members took action after no one spoke at a public hearing on the proposed amendment. Councilman John Eric Brantner, however, asked for an update from Shenandoah Police after half a year to gauge the amendment's effectiveness. I'd like to see if we can get a report in six months. We'll cover the summer season. Uh, just to see how this is doing. Are the times set right? Is it, do we, does it need to be tweaked? Um, just to see kind of how many citations, how many complaints, just to make sure it's effective as it's written. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen agreed, saying a progress report was a good idea. Tuesday night's decision was a reversal of January of last year when the council voted 3-2 to two to keep the existing measures in place. In an interview on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, McQueen said city officials reviewed the proposed ordinance in order to make it easier to enforce. There was a lot of stuff in that, and uh, basically uh, myself and... Uh, Chief Gray sat down, we dissected it out, it took parts of, you know, what we needed, we felt was the most important thing as far as days, times, the decimal level, uh, and then what the penalties would be. And I, I think that's what made the difference. I think uh, last year it was just way too much information in there. I mean, we can't regulate remote control airplanes and the sound the train makes when it comes to town and so many different things. But we got it down to where uh, now with this 85% or 8.85 uh, decimal reading, uh, it'll help them to be able to find out if this is, is actually breaking the ordinance or not. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen on KMA's Morning Line program this week. Like other construction projects, Shenandoah's proposed senior housing complex is dealing with increased costs. By a 4 to nothing vote Tuesday evening, the Shenandoah City Council approved a resolution of support for a private development agreement between the city and Shenandoah Senior Villas LP for construction of the project at 1401 West Sheridan Avenue. In May of last year, as you'll recall, the council approved a voluntary annexation of a former gas station property at that location for construction of a 40-unit apartment complex for residents aged 55 and older. Andrew Danner is a principal with North Star Housing, LLC. Despite rising construction costs, Danner says he expects his company will cover tax increment financing for the project. As everybody knows, construction prices are steadily climbing uh, at a significant rate. Uh, with this uh, TIF, it's uh, not on the city's balance sheet. We'll be carrying that as a developer and, and financing the TIF uh, and paying it back ourselves. So it won't be like a lot of other TIFs that you guys do. We're going to take those risks. Uh, off the table for it and uh, use the uh, uh, tax rebates to pay off the TIF loan and obviously get the TIF loan to uh, subsidize uh, the cost of the project. In addition to receiving an approved building permit from the city, Danner says MidAmerican Energy is cooperating with utility relocations. He's hoping construction begins in late June, early July. Typically, Danner says construction for similar projects takes 12 to 13 months. However, he adds material deliveries, such as heating and air conditioning units, are another issue. Uh, the first thing we're ordering is HVAC and our mechanicals, electrical boxes, or some of them are 8 to 10 months out. I know a lot of our HVAC stuff is, so the finish timing is up in the air, I would say, right now with materials. Danner says he appreciates the city's support for the project. North Strower Housing is the same company that developed the Nebraska City Senior Patio Homes Project. Clorinda School District now has access to portions of the former Clorinda Academy grounds. 
By a 4 to nothing vote at its regular meeting Wednesday night, the Clarenda School Board approved a 28E agreement with the Clarenda Youth Corporation to use the former academy gym and grounds. Board member Greg Jones, who also serves in the CYC Board and abstained from the vote, says the move comes as the Youth Corporation looks to find new uses for the facilities that have now been unutilized for just over a year following the Clarenda Academy's closing in early 2021. The Academy has been closed now for just about a year and CYC has still retained uh, the rights to those grounds and that and that activity center and uh, until we get termination and closure with the state sequel uh, who's going into bankruptcy uh, as an organization uh, we felt it was important as a CYC board to grant access to that for the community for community purpose. In total, the district will have access to the building housing the gym, the parking lot located in front of the gym, and a baseball and football field. Jones says there is also a grassy area next to the football field available for use. Additionally, Jones says other amenities are included in the activity building that would be at the district's disposal. There's actually what I would consider a large meeting space or a meeting room uh, on the main floor. Uh, there's also a kitchen uh, concession area uh, just outside of the gym on the main floor. And there are rooms upstairs as well uh, if the district f- found need to use those in some capacity. Um, that's definitely, you know, the more they can use, the better. Let's put it that way. Jones says the only financial obligation from the district would be supplying the labor necessary to maintain the property between mowing or snow and ice removal. However, he adds the facilities are not limited to district use. And they're also there to maintain the operations of the facility with the intent to give the community access to those grounds and that facility as well. So uh, a youth youth football team, a youth football league, or a youth baseball team, um, something along those around, uh, grounds would, would be able to use those fields. The agreement would not allow either party to make renovations costing more than $5,000 without consulting the other first. But during the meeting, Jones says CYC has already made some improvements to the gym. Clarinda motorists are advised of a speed limit change on 16th Street. Meeting in regular session Wednesday, the council voted unanimously to approve the first reading of an ordinance amendment to lower the speed limit on 16th Street from La Perla Street to Logan Street from its current 35 miles per hour to 25 miles per hour. The move comes after a similar proposal to lower the speed limit on 16th Street in East Washington failed earlier this month after council members expressed interest in just making the change on 16th Street. At the council's April 15th meeting, City Manager Gary McLarnon said feedback he had received indicated a lower speed limit was badly needed on 16th. I think it should be done either way. Um, South 16th Street, just because of the school crossing, it's mostly residential uh, down in that area. So to me, I think that's one that, that, that we probably need to go and proceed with anyway. And the proposal will come before the council for a second reading at its next meeting May 11th. It would need to pass a third reading or the council has the option of waiving the third reading and acting the new speed limit at that time. After months of discussion, plans are now set for replacement of the Page County Courthouse's windows. During its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors unanimously approved moving forward with the bidding process for the courthouse window project. 
The project would include replacing 88 windows in the courthouse with an estimate provided by Farnsworth Group LLC of roughly $735,000, including a 10% contingency for the cost of supplies. The board also previously agreed to use American Rescue Plan Act funds for the project. Kelsey Vetter, a senior architect with Farnsworth, who gave a presentation to the board, says nearly $479,000 of that cost alone will come from the cost of the windows. You, know, you guys have really large openings, and to be able to fill them does add up. Um, and I will say with that number, I've been, been working specifically with Pella just because they have a plant close by. That does not mean that they have to be used for this project. We're just listing them as a basis of design. Other estimated costs included equipment and scaffolding, demolition to the current windows, sealants, flashing, and finishes. Vetter says the subtotal estimate without market accountability is just under $680,000 would dropped by $33,000 if the board chose not to replace the 24 basement windows. KMA Land Fire Departments have had their hands full recently with a multitude of brush fires. One such fire occurred Tuesday at the city's sanitation site. Shenandoah's Fire Department says firefighters responded to reports of a leaf and brush pile on fire at Shenandoah Sanitation at around 10.30 Tuesday morning. After approximately two hours, authorities say firefighters were able to subdue the blaze after using roughly 13,000 gallons of water. Page County Emergency Management Coordinator Chris Griebert tells KMA News concerns of the fire spreading beyond the pile were reduced thanks to calmer winds plus the pile's isolation in the parking right lot. In the middle of their gravel and concrete parking lot there where they put all the brush and the leaves and stuff. But... And luckily for us, the wind was not as strong today, so that was a good thing. It wasn't blowing any ashes out of, out of there. So I think once the fire department got there and got all the water put on it and got everything around it soaking wet, I, I don't think there's any threat of it expanding or, or spreading anywhere now. Rebert adds nearly 10 firefighters along with a pumper truck and two tankers were on site to provide the adequate water supply. Fire department officials say the brush pile serves as a spot for city residents to dump their brush, which is then run through a nearby incinerator. Authorities say the cause of the fire is still under investigation. Shenandoah Sanitation won't accept yard waste until Monday. State officials attribute the unprecedented outbreak of brush fires to what they call a perfect storm. According to the latest U.S. drought monitor, 23% of Iowa faces at least D1 drought conditions or worse, considered moderate to severe, while just over 65% of the state is experiencing at least D0 levels, including abnormally dry conditions. Justin Glisson is the state climatologist with the Iowa Department of Agriculture. He says the persistent dry conditions result from an abnormally dry meteorological winter season, including December, January, and February. So we actually had the sixth driest February on record as we started to thaw those soils getting into March. Uh, those precipitation deficits still stack up even in the driest part of the year. Uh, so that's where we did see some expansion of drought conditions just basically based on subsoil moisture profiles. If you look across the state, the driest parts of the state are anywhere from the 20th to 30th percentile. Glisson says there is still room for 70% more soil infiltration in those areas, but the level has drastically improved from April 2021 when the state had soil profiles sitting in the 5th percentile. Glisson adds April 2022 is also on track to be one of the coldest on record. 
With the temperatures delaying the planting season for farmers, Glisson says the increase in temperatures and crops demanding more soil moisture later in the spring could increase dryness into the early summer months. That's where we start to develop an atmospheric thirst along with crop using subsoil moisture. That's where we can see a degradation uh, happen pretty fast in drought conditions. So if we look at those seasonal outlooks for um, April, May, June, and even May, June, July, we see an elevated signal for warmer temperatures uh, and then a slightly elevated signal for uh, a drier signal. Additionally, despite April being the windiest month for Iowa, Glisson says the state has still seen roughly two to three miles per hour above average winds per day, putting the trifecta of grass fire conditions together. And that might not sound like a lot, but when you have a string of days in which your your wind speeds are 20 to 30 miles per hour and you're gusting into the 40 to 50 mile per hour range, um, it's easy once a grass fire starts for those winds to perpetuate and propagate those fires. While the recent rains have leveled off drought conditions, Glisson says the state will need four to five months of above average rainfall to improve subsoil moisture and those stream flows and reduce the risk of grass fires. Eventually, summer weather will arrive, and that means towns like Sydney will need lifeguards for its municipal swimming pool. At a workshop meeting Monday night, the Sydney City Council approved a pair of incentives for lifeguards at the city pool. A base salary for returning guards of $10 plus $0.25 per each year of returning and a $100 payment to offset the costs of the lifeguarding certification upon a successful season. Councilman Don Benedict says that the $0.25 sense is a familiar incentive, plus the new $100 payment would require the guard to receive a positive performance review and complete 200 hours of service in a season. If it was evenly split, it'd be like around 30 uh, days, so we let a little leeway in there and put, uh, came up with 200 hours for that would even give them five days for vacation or sports or whatever, so uh, that would be part of the successful year. Deputy Clerk Brenda Benedict says the pool manager will conduct the performance review at the end of the pool season. We just have a form for the manager to fill out, basically just saying, should they come to work, um, would you rehire them next year? Simple question. She says the pool typically requires 10 lifeguards to function, but did manage with just eight in 2021. However, there were several days with just one guard on duty. Additionally, Brenda Benedict says one applicant has applied for the pool manager position, while three have shown interest in the two assistant manager openings. After his initial motion failed to receive a second, Don Benedict feared with the current situation, the pool would not be able to open for its anticipated late May opening, if at all. I don't okay. know why there isn't a second. You're going to have problems getting lifeguards if we don't do something. Well, we, have to, we have to get our lifeguards hired here pretty soon. And you're also they're in danger of not opening the pool. Councilman Drew Lamaster also questioned whether the Hamburg City Pool had been contacted after sharing a pool manager and guards. However, Brenda Benedict says Hamburg is also currently looking for a new manager and has not had talks of sharing. Sydney resident Brandon Morgan, who lives on Main Street, spoke during the meeting's public comment period. While he feels the council is on the right track, he hopes they will look harder for into what incentives and pay the city could offer to staff the pool adequately. Um, I think it does a detriment to our community to not staff that properly and not to have that open for the youth in this uh, community. Um, 
Uh, I think we have a good chance to, uh, when you look at the pay for those um, lifeguards, and we didn't discuss what the manager makes, but uh, I think it, it will do the community really good to have a good person in there and to um, to uh, monitor that. The council also approved Mayor Ken Brown to conduct interviews with the candidates for the pool manager position and two assistant manager positions, then provide recommendations of the next council meeting. Supporters of a Montgomery County recreational project are asking for assistance in landing some big bucks. At its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors heard a request for $15,000 in funding for a feasibility study for a proposed trail across the county. Larry Branstetter is a member of the Montgomery County Recreational Trails Board of Directors. Branstetter says the study is necessary in order to apply for federal grant money for the proposed project. Branstetter says the study would explore two possible trails spanning between three communities. They would look at two different routes between Red Oak Stanton and Stanton and Villisca, and they would look at the issues involved in each of those routes, provide cost estimates for building uh, a trail between those communities, and then uh, give that report back to our association. And then we would have sit down and talk with county officials about each of those routes and the issues, get their input before we made a decision as to which one would be the most appropriate. Randstetter says supporters see the trail as a recreational and economic development opportunity for the county. And there's the possibility of connecting to trails in other counties. We'd like to work with Mills County, and we've expressed that to them, to bring their trails from the Wabash in Malvern over to Emerson, to Red Oak, then to Stanton, Villisca, on down to uh, into Page County and into Nottaway Park or Clorinda, and then across back to Shenandoah so that people could get back on the trace and move. Supervisors Chair Mark Peterson himself, an avid bicyclist, says he has no illusions that the Montgomery County project would rival the Wabash Trace in terms of scope. However, he says the study would be a good use of funds. If we can tap into Viking Lake and have the campers that are there at leisure anyway, and not all campers are going to ride bikes, there's no doubt about that, but it will bring commerce to Red Oak, to Stanton, to Villisca as they move around. And yes, bikers do spend money. I can testify to that. While expressing support for the study, board members questioned where the money would come from. Those supporters are seeking funding from the county's American Rescue Plan Act allocation. Supervisor Donna Robinson believes the county's economic development funds are a clear option for the study. We have not opened up the ARPA funds to out external applications. Uh, we, don't, we have not, that committee has not done that. And we recently passed a resolution stating that all of our funding was going to go for governmental. So I think it would be a matter of, we would just maybe need to talk a little bit about where the funding would actually come from rather than necessarily just specifically to ARPA funds, because we have not opened that up just yet. The supervisors are expected to consider a budget amendment for the funding request at a meeting next month. Red Oak school officials say it's a good problem to have. Increased enrollment causing space shortages in the district's facilities. Deep discussion on the district's space shortage took place during a Red Oak school board work session Monday night. Red Oak School Superintendent Ron Lorenz tells KMA News the district is sending out requests for proposals to 16 architectural firms for a future facilities assessment to address the limitations as well as other issues with the district's facilities. We want to make sure that we're being thoughtful, that we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. 
So we're asking some experts to come in and just take a look at where we are and and help us bridge that gap to where we want to be. Concerns over space issues at Inman Elementary School sparked discussion in an earlier meeting. Lorenz says the situation has changed since 2017 when voters approved a $19.9 million bond issue for a major renovation of the district's facilities, including an Inman. Since that time, Lorenz says the district's enrollment is up. You know, for many years we experienced declining enrollment like many of the districts in the area. Uh, I think our average decline was about 18 kids per year for the past 15 years. This year we saw an increase of 36 and a half kids, which was uh, quite a quite a thing. And we attribute a lot of that to the success of the Red Oak Early Childhood Center. In fact, plans for renovating the center were disclosed during Monday's work session. Lorenz's members of the Montgomery County Child Development Association are seeking grant money for an expansion project in the wake of increased enrollment at the facility. Lorenz's RFPs for the facility's study are due back to the district uh, later this week. And that wraps up another edition of This Week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us, and have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.